0: Have you been stressed, anxious, or worried? Have you felt pangs of loneliness in recent times? Are you longing for greater connection with others in the world around you? In a phrase, are you looking for happiness? You are not alone. Millions of others are seeking this feeling of spiritual, mental, and physical wellness too. This podcast explores the underlying causes of unhappiness and shares with us the secrets of rewriting the frequent thoughts and redirecting the common behaviors that keep us in that state. Join forensic psychologist and best-selling author Dr. Nihal and her guests as they dive deep in the realm of psychological wellness and explore ways of finding happiness on demand.
1: I'm going to start, Laura, with uh, introducing you to the our listeners, Laura Morton is the author of over 60 books, believe it or not, and 21 New York Times bestsellers. Laura works with a wide variety of celebrities and business leaders, including Justin Bieber, Joan London, John Maxwell, Dave Linger, Tom Ferry, Glenn Stearns, just to name a few. She has been involved in the entertainment industry for over 25 years as a writer, producer, and entrepreneur. She's also a mother and a philanthropist. She's the co-director, producer, and writer of the award-winning film, Anxious Nation, which is available for streaming on Amazon, Apple TV, and you can get it on anxiousnation.com. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Joan. Nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about uh, what prompted you to do Anxious Nation.
2: Well, you know, I'm the parent of an anxious child, and in 2018, I was sitting at my desk one day, and I was feeling incredibly defeated as, as a parent, and I thought I was letting my my daughter down uh, because she was an anxious kid, and I I hadn't really been given a lot of answers. It took about seven years for me to get a diagnosis, and I thought what was happening in our home was only happening in our home. And, uh, you know, in 2018, it just, there was so much stigma attached to even talking about something like this, especially when it comes to our kids. Um, I, I really thought we were alone. So I uh, I put a post on Facebook, one line, kids and anxiety, who's dealing with it? And I was really surprised by the response that I got. You know, on Facebook, I got, I am, we are, my niece is, my granddaughter is, whatever But then private messages started to come into my inbox and on my phone as text messages. And they were from people that I knew and knew well and people that I socialized with. And we had never talked about what was going on in our homes. And it was shocking to me in some ways and and a relief to me in others because uh, it wasn't just happening in our home. And what I realized was that uh, if my family was struggling. I couldn't imagine how other families were getting through this. And so I had an idea as a storyteller by trade. I had the idea to go on a search. I wanted to understand why our kids are so anxious. And in 2018, I really actually wanted to understand if they were actually more anxious or we were just more aware of it. I think in 2023, that point is relatively moot. But in 2018, it was a relevant question. And I wanted to understand why And then I really, really wanted answers. What can I do about it? And so I spent four and a half years on that journey making Anxious Nation.
1: And also consulting, as I noticed in the film, with professionals.
2: Well, I didn't really consult with them. Um, I I interviewed them because I'm not a professional. I'm a parent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I do not dole out advice when it comes to... uh, you know, professional help. I think if you are in need of professional help, that's what what you should get. Um, but I am a parent, and so I have an expertise in in being the parent of an anxious child. So selfishly, I wanted to talk to all of these experts because I wanted the answers, and I knew if the answers were meaningful to me, I I knew they would be meaningful to other people. And selflessly, I knew that. This would be an outstanding opportunity for the viewers of Anxious Nation to have access to some of, if not all of, the best experts in adolescent mental health. Um, so we have, you know, we have experts including uh, Dr. Shefali and Jeffrey Zyg and Dan Siegel. Um, we have the Child Mind Institute is involved. Harold Kopowitz is in the film. Kenya Hamid is in the film, and the wonderful. Lynn Lyons, who is still in private practice and uh, is boots on the ground. A lot of the other experts that, that I have in the film have been doing this a very long time, uh, but they, they're they not seeing a lot of patients on, on the daily like Lynn Lyons does. And I think Lynn has been such a standout in the film because she talks in such a way that she, um, she talks in such a way that she uh, is so relatable, right? And she she uh, makes it really easy to understand what what you're going through as a parent, what your kid is going through, um, and so we're very lucky to have every single one of those experts in the film. But they're they're just a piece of the film. The, the families and the kids that are in our film, I think, are, are the true shining stars.
1: Uh,
2: yeah, they they're so courageous to be telling their stories and sharing their stories in such an open and, and vulnerable way. Um, a lot of the footage that you see in the film was self-shot, especially during COVID. And, uh, you know, that generation has no problem holding up their phone and, you know, talking into it. And so uh, I probably got, you know, footage and content that I would never have gotten if I sat down and interviewed them. They're just so much more comfortable just talking. So that was really um I I think important for us to have that and to hear it right from the kids. You know, this is what I'm going through. This is what this feels like. This is, you know, how I'm coping with it or how I'm not coping with it. This is what I was thinking of when I attempted suicide. This is how I tried to get help in the system, uh, you know, uh, gave me five sessions and kind of, you know, sent me on my way. Um, So we talk a lot about what, what works and what doesn't work.
1: And when you think about it, I think that film is very important for on many levels because anxiety isn't something we talk about too often, do we?
2: we well, I think we talk about it more today, right? Yes. Um, I, I certainly think post-COVID, I don't know anybody who's not dealing with anxiety on some level. So I certainly think that we talk about it more today, more comfortably today, although it's still a terribly uncomfortable topic. And we've seen this, you know, with, with people who who just simply won't watch the movie because it's too hard, right? And, you know, I come from uh, a place in my own thinking where you have to address the hard conversations. You have to have them. And especially as a parent, you know, for your child's sake. You know, so I am that parent that felt like I was failing. And, and so I wanted to know how to do better. And I made the film that, that I wanted and needed as that parent not as a filmmaker, this is my first film, my only film, Uh, but it made the film that I knew, uh, if somebody had given this to me when my daughter was young and I could identify what was happening with her much sooner, um, you know, every doctor I took her to, the pediatrician, and and every specialist that I took her to never considered that it was her emotional health. They, They only looked at and assessed her physical health. And that's a sad commentary on where we are um, when we look at health not as a whole, right? So that's a that's a big that's a big deal. You know, 95% of all funding in the United States for healthcare goes to physical health. Less than five percent goes to mental health.
1: Correct. And I was wondering how this relates to your perception of happiness today in the world.
2: Well, Look, I don't think an anxious person can, you know, I don't think, I don't think that you're unhappy if you're anxious. I think you're anxious, right? It's energy. So um, I think it's learning how to harness anxious energy and using it for good. And that to me is the key takeaway in all of this, right? Understanding that that anxiety is, is energy. So what do you do with it? What do you do with it when you feel it coming on? You know, anxiety doesn't have a lot of tricks in in its toolbox. It shows up pretty much the same way. It might be something different that triggers you. It's a little bit of a shape-shifter, but it shows up and it feels very much the same way every time. So when you feel those feelings come on, what do you do with it? And we see it a lot with, you know, uh, athletes, for example, or musicians or actors, they take that energy, that nervous energy, if you will, that anxious energy, and they funnel it and and they harness it and funnel it and, and put it into pr- their performance. So they just repurpose that energy. Um, and that's such a gift to be able to look at it that way. and and so uh, you know, how do you get there? It's not the same road. For for everyone, right? What works for you might not work for me, and what works for me might not work for my daughter or for Alan. Um, but how do you get there? And there is something that works. So um, I don't believe that an anxious person is necessarily an unhappy person. I I, I think that um, happiness is something that that um, can be in- impacted by your level of anxiety. But um, you know, for me, I, I don't I don't put them even remotely in the same category.
1: That makes sense. I think that uh, with anxiety and what I really loved about your film was the fact that it demystifies a lot that people have in terms of preconceptions of what anxiety is, that it's something to be hidden. You as a parent feeling like an utter failure and us in our field, not really giving you the tools you needed. You talk about Lynn Lyons. And in my opinion, Lynn is a star because what she does is she boils it down to basics. She'll tell you in your in your kitchen, you probably got macaroni. Well, you know when you boil it, what happens? And that yeah. happens with anxiety.
2: No, I thought it was just brilliant, you know. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. She talks about anxiety as being a cult leader in the home. Yes. And as soon as you say that to, to people, they get it. They understand, they're beholden to that cult leader, right? And as long as you're doing what the cult leader wants you to do, everything is fine. It's the second you you start to push back against that cult leader that it becomes a problem. And uh, she, you know, Lynn really gave my daughter and I, my daughter's name is Sevi, and she gave us a common language so that when Sevi was having these moments, you know, she could turn to me and go, mom, you're doing the disorder which meant I was actually adding to the problem when I thought I was helping. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, I attribute so much of that language that we now have to the brilliance of Lynn Lyons. She, she wrote an excellent book called the anxiety audit. um, And she has a podcast as well. You guys should do each other's podcasts. Um, And so, yeah, it's called, her podcast is called fluster Mm Clocks, And Yeah, it's a great, it's a great title. But, um, you know, she's just a, a no BS, you know, storyteller, right? This is how it is. And so she has for sure been, um, like you said, she's a star. She has been uh, a fan favorite. Uh, when people watch the film, they really, really love when Lynn is on the screen talking. Uh, and I think it's it's so incredible that, you know, anybody can watch this film, right? You don't have to be a parent to get something out of this film. I just had a conversation with somebody a couple of days ago who was not a parent. They said, you know, I watched it and I didn't realize I had an anxious childhood until I watched your movie. I never had a name for how I felt. And it helped them understand so much about themselves and where they came from.
1: See, that's what I was hinting at, Laura, because I do believe that your film is like a layer cake. There are different levels and a person can take away from this, hey, I had that in my childhood and I didn't realize it. And here, I well, it, it,
2: You know, that was the thing, like, you know, that question of, are we more anxious or just more aware of it? I mean, I think we've always been anxious. I think anxiety has been, you know, around since antiquity, right? So I, I the question is, you know, there was a generation, and I think all of us on on this call here probably can relate to, you know, a rambunctious little boy or a nervous little girl. And, you know, that was still anxiety, It just, we just had different names for it. We didn't identify it the same way that we do today. And maybe there's a a benefit to that. Maybe there's not. But I think we have a much greater understanding of it today. And I think my greatest takeaway in making the film was understanding that what Seve feels is real to her. So how I would view that same situation, how I would react to that same situation that makes her incredibly anxious is irrelevant. It's how she views it and how she has to power through it. And so it was a really big aha for me not to take my own perception and try to place it on her, but to honor her and her feelings. And then help her try to navigate through it. Right. The question, how do you nurture through that nature?
1: And it goes back, don't you think, Laura? The three of us can talk about our childhood. We can go back to our past, but don't you think in the past this was something that was uh, not spoken about?
2: I don't even think it's in the past. I think I think we still don't speak. There are, there are communities, the black and brown communities, for example, where they don't talk about it, right? Um, indigenous communities, they you know, Asian communities. It's it is. Uh, there's still a lot of stigma around this, a lot of shame, you know. Uh, where you can, uh, you know, self-medicate and smoke pot and drink, and that's not a problem in certain communities. But going to see a therapist makes you look weak? You know, that's that's stigma.
1: Well, it was considered something that brought shame and embarrassment and inadequacy, and something was wrong with you, because real men don't do that. Real men don't have emotions, you know, we just... uh suck it up, buttercup. And now if you're going for therapy, you must be weak. But I think a lot of that has changed over the years that people are looking at therapy as the quote-unquote in thing. I've got my therapist, I'm going for therapy, and it's all about uh, finding out more about yourself. So that stigma to a certain extent has been removed in Western society. I agree. However, if I go to Shanghai, for example, where I did a talk, uh, there was a high degree of suicide in our grade 12 students because they hadn't got into the prestigious universities. So.
2: Well that is also very true in um, the uh, Arab nations
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know it is uh, but we have a very high rate of suicide here in the United States in North America you know I don't know if Canada is nearly as bad as the United States but we we certainly are seeing uh, suicide rates rising at alarming levels and and post COVID especially. Um I think that I, I'm not sure that I fully agree that 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 going to see a therapist that stigma has been totally washed out. I think that there is still some stigma around that. But the bigger issue is access, right? And that not everybody has access to get help. And that there is a manpower problem, if you will. There aren't enough practicing professionals to meet the demand. So that means when you're on a college campus and you have uh, the need to see somebody, it can take up to three months to get an intake appointment. So, you know, there just isn't enough people filling the gap of, of those that are retiring out of the business, right? And insurance companies make it very unpalatable to want to go, unpalatable to want to go into this field So if you're, you know, if you're going to become a psychiatrist, you're going to medical school for the same amount of time as, say, an anesthesiologist, and you don't have the same insurance issues, so your income is, you know, significantly different. There's not a lot of uh, lure for for this generation coming up to want to go into this field, except for those who really struggled and, and want to go into it to help others and and there is there are lots of kids we have i have two kids in our film who uh, are both um in the field have gotten their master's degree one is in medical school right now and she's struggling by the way with becoming a cardiologist or going into the field of mental health and for the very reasons that we just talked about you know there's you know
1: i would agree with you that the stigma is still there what i am saying however is that it's less than it used to be in the past for sure but Laura,
2: and, you, and that's a silver lining, Joan, to to COVID, right? I think that COVID was that was the gift of COVID.
1: Exactly. I mean, you know, Pauline, was and ambiguous loss. Yeah, we all figured that on out. We we're all experiencing it. But have you noticed the statistics, the incidence of younger people getting depressed? That's the part so, that really bothers me. Is our young people are experiencing? There's an increase in depression and suicide rates with the younger groups.
2: For sure, and especially young girls. And those numbers are are exponentially higher than they were before COVID. And we don't know how bad those numbers are going to get, um, but they are continuously moving in the wrong direction. In other words, it's not getting better. Um, And it's, you know, I think in 2021, there was a 51% increase of uh, emergency room visits for young girls, be you know, for uh, suicide, suicide attempts or or suicidal ideation, a 51% increase. If we had a 51% increase or in a quote morbidity rate in any disease, we didn't even have that for COVID and we shut the world down, right? So why aren't we paying more attention to it? Why aren't we putting more resources, you know, to this, to, to help this? It's not a crisis. It's an epidemic. And what happened was COVID poured gasoline all over an already burning inferno. So we've got this raging fire that we have no control over, especially among our youth. And the second highest demographic that's really suffering are seniors. Yes. So it's, you know, it isn't just a kid problem, right? Seniors are really, really struggling. And they've been the surprise audience for Anxious Nation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, you remember the U-shape of happiness. Uh, up to your 20s, you're happy, and then it goes down, and then you go back up, and in your 80s, you're clinically happy. Well, I say, nope, not anymore. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the UK, for example, the percentage of males who are reporting depression is significantly high.
2: Never used yeah, to- but you know, and and look, anxiety and depression are, are, are pals, right? They like to hang out together. Of course. And the importance... Of of treating anxiety early on is so that it doesn't morph into depression, right? And the 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 cult leader wants that. The cult leader wants you to be anxious and depressed, and so that's why it's so important to try to pass on you know tools that that our youth can you know manage their anxiety early on, right? So I'm a big advocate for, um, I don't think this is something that the schools should be taking care of. I think it's something that uh, when you take your child to the pediatrician, they should have a mental health and a mental wellness check every single time. That doesn't start in this country until you're 12 or 13, as if to say there are no mental health issues in kids younger than that. You know, it's just like saying you can't have a mammogram until 50 right? It's, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. And my daughter's anxiety started when she was three. And it took seven years for somebody to say, you realize that she's anxious, right? Yes. So when I would go to the pediatrician's office, they would be like, oh, it's her diet. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. It was always something physical. And, you know, not And I thought, I, listen, I loved my pediatrician. They just didn't have the, the training. And the number of, 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 quite frankly, the number of therapists that I took her to who also didn't identify it. So, you know, you're as good as the help that you're you're able to get.
1: That's a sad statement, but also a very uh, valid one, I'm afraid.
2: Not every therapist is a a good therapist. Um, in the same day, Seve had a therapist who said to her, I think I've told you this story before, but the same day in a session, Sebi was telling her therapist, she was probably eight, maybe, maybe nine. And she was telling her therapist that she wanted to be an actress and she wanted to be a singer. Yes. And her therapist said to her, you know, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a professional football player, but I just wasn't good enough. So I gave up on that dream. And I said, so I jumped in because I, of course, I, you know, you know as well enough to know that, that not only are we, you know, big believers in supporting dreams, but you know, I wanted somebody to know that what he said was not great. So I said, well, you know, my dream right now uh, is that I want, I want to make a film about anxiety. And he said, Oh yeah. Yeah. You know how many films are out there about anxiety? Yeah. Good luck with that. And so later that day I called him and I said two things I want to say to you first, don't ever be a dream crusher of my child's dreams. Don't ever, don't ever do that again. And second, you're fired. You know? Like if this is the person that was that was going to be her therapist, he was at talk about somebody who was adding to the problem, right? To fueling her self-doubt.
1: Well, not only that, but the self-disclosure he used was totally inappropriate.
2: Completely inappropriate and unprofessional. PS, I sent him a link to the movie when it came out, and uh, you know, with a little note that said, "Remember, don't kill anybody's dreams." Did he respond? He did, but he didn't watch the movie. I'm sure he didn't watch the movie. Oh, that, that's really sad. Look, before- but but listen, this is the, if if that was happening in my family, Joan, right? And and I I can't. I am in a position to be able to take Sebi to the best doctors. And this was who we ended up seeing. But unless I was sitting in on those sessions, how would I know? And you don't always sit in on your kids' sessions.
1: That's another good point for parents to be aware of. I think they should sit in in all sessions. And if they don't understand something, or on a visceral level, they feel it's wrong, they should have a voice too.
2: Well, I think people often ask me about treating anxiety. And one, one of the things that I'm very adamant about is that you can't just treat the child, right? I think it's systemic. And I think that the, the family has to be treated as a whole because as a parent, I was doing things that I felt were right. I was doing things that I thought were coming from a loving place and they were actually adding to her anxiety. And so what do we do as parents? We catastrophize, right? Don't ride your bike without your helmet. You're gonna fall and hit your head. You're gonna get brain damage you know, be be wary of strangers, all the stuff that we say as parents that we think are, you know, are coming from a loving, protective place. To an anxious kid, that just ratchets everything up. So I had to learn how to communicate with her in a different way. And without, you know, being a part of that process, I would have just continued. She could have been making all the progress in the world, and I would have continued adding to the problem. So I think it's so important, and especially when parents come from, from two different points of view, right? You've got a tough love parent, and you've got a parent who, you know, is doing the disorder, who's serving the cult leader. And, and, you know, and they both sort of stake their ground.
1: You know, what you're saying would be music to Sal Mnuchin's ears if he were alive today, because he was a strong promote, proponent of the family, and he'd get the entire family in there doing the, what you call the cult. OK, and then the change would happen. Before we run out of time, I want to ask you a quick question. What do you think about it? You know, we're talking about anxiety and young people and you talked about uh, the pandemic. Tell me about the epidemic of loneliness and did the pandemic exacerbate that?
2: For sure. And I mean, I think when people ask me all the time, the first thing they, they say is, well, the problem is social media. The problem is our devices. And I, I always say, no, I, I actually think that's a byproduct of the, the crisis of loneliness and isolation and disconnection in this country. And we are the loneliest country in the world. And we do have a crisis of loneliness. And I think that that what we see uh, as these rates of anxiety are spiking is that they, it is a byproduct of that. I, I think, you know, having the stay at home orders and all of us having to, you know, isolate did not help that at all. And I think we're seeing this now, especially in kids who, when they went back to school, they were either starting middle school, high school or college. And they did not, they will, they absolutely were not emotionally equipped to be there. They, they lost two years of growth and maturity and experiences to help them adapt. So my daughter was one of those kids, right? She basically missed middle school. And those are such pivotal and important years. Um, Layer that in our family, we had just moved to California. She didn't know anybody. She had no friends. It was just us hanging out. There's no middle school kid on the planet who only wants to hang out with their mom. And, you know, so it was very, very tough. I think that loneliness is the bigger issue Um, I, you know, I love that that Vivit Murthy talks about it, but there's no strategy on how we want to fix that problem any more than there's a strategy on what we're doing with mental health overall. Right. But I do think that that's the bullseye. And I think it's really important, you know, that people recognize and understand the value in community, the value in connection. That's where, you know, pure joy comes from.
1: I agree totally. You see, that's my baby. I mean, that's what I what I promote. I believe that, I mean, when we look at the UK, for example, Theresa May created the Ministry of Loneliness.
2: Okay. What are we yep. doing for it? Right. Well, we're talking about it like we've been talking about mental health for decades, right? When we were first making the film, I had, I had content going all the way back to Eleanor Roosevelt talking about the mental health crisis in this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, We've just been kicking the can. And, you know, we're now in a place where it doesn't matter how much money we want to throw after it. We simply don't have the resources. We don't have the people. So, you know, now what? So it really is up to us, Joan, right? It's up to us as individuals to, to advocate for ourselves.
1: And also to promote ways to connect, as you said, community. In the past, we had a village. Now we have disconnect and the disconnect is getting larger in my opinion. It's not getting smaller. But I would say in defense to, of social media, because I was the one who would always say, oh, well, this is not good for us. I will say thanks to social media, we have platforms to communicate like we are right now. So I am grateful to it if we use it. Oh, and- I
2: think there are uh, lots of good things about social media. I do. And I, and I think it's also a sense of community, right? Um, but there can be a false sense of connection. Yes. And, and especially for our kids. And so, and and what comes with that, FOMO and cyberbullying and you know catfishing and all of these things that I didn't grow up with, you didn't grow up with, Alan. I'm sure you didn't grow up with. Um, you know, these are real crises, right? And so, it's really important. Um, I try not to use the the phone and social media as a punishment to my daughter, uh, because that is how she feels connected. And so I don't want to take that away on top of everything else, but we do have a lot of conversations about what's good about it and what's not so good about it. And, you know, as she's gotten a little bit older, she's gotten a little bit wiser and that's, you know, that's the key, right? Let's educate each other on this. And because it isn't all bad, right? I'm very grateful to social media because it's how I'm able to spread the word about anxious nation, about the books that I write, about the work that I do, you know, uh, we live in a digital world. So thinking that that's going to go away and change is not um, that's not logical. What is important, and this is something I advocate for very strongly, is I think we have to regulate social media companies. I think we have to regulate tech in the same way that we regulate tobacco and uh, pharmaceutical companies um, You know, currently in this country. The tech and the social media companies are protected under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which says that they have no culpability, no liability for any third party posting on their platforms. And that is a law that went into effect in 1996. It predates the formation of any of these companies. And so tech is so deep in the pockets of Washington. The only thing that President Obama and President Trump i'm sure had in common was they both wanted to overturn section 230 and neither one of them could move that through and so the way that we're getting around it now in this country is going after the the social media companies for the algorithms because they are not protected under that law for knowingly creating addictive algorithms
1: wow Laura, we are running out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to pass on to our listeners? I've learned a lot from just speaking to you today.
2: Well, look, I am so grateful that you had me on the show, Joan. You know, I'm a big fan. I loved working with you. Uh, oh, you're your amazing. You, you just, I'm so proud to have you on the show. Listeners, you have no idea who we're speaking to. She's amazing. We're so thank well, to hear you. Thank you. I, I, uh, happy as the new healthy was a joy, and and getting to know you as well. You are one of the kindest, most generous human beings on the planet. Um, and really, this is about doing good, right? Your your podcast is about doing good. Anxious Nation is about doing good. And, you know, if if it doesn't check that box in our lives, you know, that happiness quotient will not be met.
1: I aye, aye. I agree totally.
2: So thank you for having
1: me. Thank you for being with us, Laura. And the best to you and your future with
2: Anxious Nations and everything else that you're doing. Thank you very much. And again, to remind your listeners, it's available on on Amazon, on uh, Apple TV, and you can always go to anxiousnation.com and uh, sign up for our newsletters. We have a lot of great, great information that we're putting out um, and a lot of resources. So uh, we, we hear you and we see you and we don't want you to think you're alone.
1: And is there anything else, any other way that they can can reach out to you if they needed more information?
2: AnxiousNation.com.
1: Okay. There you go.
2: Thanks. Yep. Thank you. Thanks Joan. Appreciate it. Bye now. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining this discussion on happiness. We hope this helps to inspire you to lead a more joyful life. To dive deeper into the subject of happiness, be sure to check out Dr. Nihal's book, Happy is the New Healthy, available as an ebook or hardcover. For additional resources, visit our website at drnihal.com. Until next time, stay happy.